We're in the book of Acts, chapter 19. And if you've been tracking with us over the last uh, several months as we've gone through Acts, you've seen the progression of Paul from city to city and the advance of the gospel from place to place. And you see, you've seen breakthroughs happen and manifestations of God's Holy Spirit confirming the work of the gospel, confirming the mission and message of Paul. And now we're in the city of, of Ephesus. One of the things that's real helpful to us and will be super helpful to you in your own personal Bible study is to see the natural correlation between books, between texts. So Acts chapter 19 has an occurrence of Paul in the city of Ephesus, and you'll understand the book of Ephesus a lot better, and you'll understand the book of Acts a lot better as you read those two concurrently. And one of the themes that you find in Paul's letter to the Ephesians again and again is the theme of God's power. I mean, over and over, Paul is emphasizing this. We see it in his declarations. We see it in his prayers for the people. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he's praying that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. I want you to know how powerful is God in Christ, he says. In chapter 3, verse 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He wanted the people to know that Christianity is more than just about facts. It's more than just about principles. It's more than just about propositional truths. It is those things, but it's much more. It's about power. It's about the power of God that does something. And what God's power does is more than just guarantee you heaven. It transforms your life. It sets you free from sin and darkness. It makes you into a new person Created after the image of Christ, there's power in it. Ephesians 3.20, he says of God, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us. Whatever your ideas of what God can do, whatever limitations in your mind you've consciously or subconsciously placed on God, dispel those, because God's bigger than that. His power is exceeding, it's abundant, it's bigger than you can imagine. You get to chapter 6 in the end, the admonition to his people is this, after you've girded yourself up to fight the good fight, the spiritual fight against the enemy, and you've put on the armor that God has provided for you, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, now why did Paul so emphasize in the book of Ephesians, in his letter to the Ephesians, the power of God? Well, it has a lot to do with the context of the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was going to be a very difficult city at least on the surface, for the message of God, the gospel of God, the advance of the church to break through. Ephesus was known as a capital of magic, the occult, witchcraft. And there was so much syncretism there. So even believers were still practicing witchcraft from the old days. They were mixing the two, commingling these old occultic practices with, with their new beliefs. And this was just commonplace. And the approach to religion as magic, that which I can control, that which I can command, that which I can dictate with formulas or with names or with phrases so that the gods, so-called gods, would serve me. That's sort of the religious mindset of the Ephesians. But God comes in in great power, and Paul wants them to know there is no power comparable to God's. There's nothing comparable. There is no power, no authority that is not under him, that is not subject to him. And that's where we pick up today in Acts chapter 19 starting in verse 11, but let's pray before we delve into today's text. Father, grant us by your grace, according to the riches that you possess in glory, that we would know you today, that we would see you, that we would encounter you, that we'd be amazed at you, that we would be in awe of you, that we would trust you, that we would love you, that we would follow you, that we would yield to you. Father, I pray that in, in glimpsing you today and encountering you today, we would really know you, not just know things about you, not just believe ideas or concepts concerning you, not even try to be obedient to things we think you tell us to do, but to really know you and to know you in power. Father, that's what we need. We need your power in our lives. We need your power all around us. We want to see your power at work in this world, and so, Father, we yield to you today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Verse 11 starts off with a bang. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, before I read exactly what the miracles were, and you can quickly, obviously, read ahead of me, 
you know, it's interesting that Luke, who was very specific in his details, you know, we know that Acts is the second part of what Luke wrote. He wrote a, a gospel account, and then the second half of that gospel account, he writes in what we call Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. But Luke was meticulous. Now, Luke was a physician. He cared about details. He cared about information. He was not a sensationalist. He's not a storyteller. He's not just weaving tales. He's meticulously recording facts and events. And for Luke to note that this is extraordinary is significant. I mean, a lot of amazing things have happened in the book of Acts so far, a lot of amazing miracles, a lot of powerful things that we try to get our heads around, that we try to understand, that we try to contextualize for our own times. But man, this one, this one's over the top because listen what happens. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. I mean, you picture what he's saying here. Again, it's, it's not superstition that we're talking about. Uh, these are real events. He says, you know, here's Paul, the tent maker, a man who made his income with the sweat of his brow, the hard work of his hands. And so that sweaty handkerchief around his head or that sweaty apron that he wore, that thing that Paul did his work in, that, that, that game day jersey of the Apostle Paul, if you could just get your hands on one of those, if you could just touch one of those, you'd be healed by it. I mean, this is pretty phenomenal. Does, is anyone else amazed by this? Or is it like, this is ho-hum to you. I don't know. I, that's all I got here. They're touching his handkerchiefs and his aprons, and they're getting healed by them. And not just healings. People who were demon-possessed, the demons were going out of them. So there's a great demonstration. Now, it's also important as you look at this passage, who is being attributed the credit? Not Paul and not Paul's sweat, but God. Look what happens next. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. That's all in quotes. It's like an incantation. It's like a magical formula, a phrase. I adjure you by the name Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil priest answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I was listening to a bit of an Alistair Begg sermon on this, and he said, at that point, they changed the name from the seven sons of Sceva to the seven strippers of Sceva. And they run out of the house, wounded and naked. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, this is an incredible scene, the sort of thing that couldn't be ignored. People had to, to try to get their minds around it. And certainly it's recorded and preserved for us. We have to get our minds around it. What is happening in this text? Well, first of all, it's clear that God is doing something that's extraordinary. And I use the term extraordinary intentionally because it's outside of the ordinary. When you see these sort of miraculous healings in Scripture, there are really only three people that have ever been the tools, the instruments of healing like this. Jesus, for whom someone could touch simply the garments of his clothing or the tip of his garment and be healed. Peter, for whom they believed that even those for whom his shadow fell were being healed. And now Paul, whose dirty work clothes were healing people. Only those three. So at least it makes it extraordinary. This is not typical. This is not usual. But as I said, it's not superstition here. Luke is not just recounting for us what people thought might have happened. He's not simply um, continuing the tale of mythology or legend. He's reporting. That's what Luke does. That's how Luke writes. He's reporting. So again, it's, it's not superstition, but it's not typical. And so when I say it's not typical, we shouldn't expect this to happen in our day and age. And we shouldn't demand it to happen. Now, I will be more than willing 
to let one of you wear my sweaty coat when I get finished today, and I assure you it will be sweaty. It gets hot up here under these lights, but I don't think it's going to heal you in any way. But we shouldn't expect this to be the norm today. This shouldn't be a, a proof text that we would use to say, okay, that's how God works. That's what God does. God does stuff just like this. And if you think it's ridiculous that people would believe that God typically, normally works in this way, you'd be wrong. I saw this ad today. I won't tell you the ministry, but you could get yours if you wanted to from Dayton, Tennessee. It would only cost you $10. After much demand, we decided to once again offer a prayer cloth to each person who sends in a donation of 10 or more from today through the end of the month. For $10, you could get one of these. He said, you may recall us sending out prayer calls last year. We immediately began to receive testimonies for healing, breakthroughs, restoration, and finances. We have seen many miracles through prayer cloths, as did the Apostle Paul. These prayer cloths have been prayed over many times. I know the anointing of God rests upon them. It does not rest upon them. Nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say that God's anointing rests upon prayer cloths. And he even quotes the Scripture, Acts 19.12, which I just read. He says, I think we've shared this before. It bears repeating. I have an uncle who was diagnosed with cancer several years ago. He was told there's no hope. My mom gave him a prayer cloth. He received the prayer cloth, received his faith in God as a healer. He's still alive today. He works every day, has a smile on his face. That prayer cloth is still in his wallet, worn and torn. We want you to have one of these in your hand, your wallet, your home, wherever you need it to be. And they go on to add in bold print. Finally, we have specific prayer cloths for military personnel, police officers, and children. So I don't know if those differ by color or type or texture, but they have a unique anointing for them. And this is a sort of idolatry. In fact, that's magic. And it's the very thing. And here's the, the, the horrible irony. The very thing that Paul is teaching against, the very thing that the power of God is coming against, this idolatrous sort of magic, is the very thing this person thinks that passage teaches. God is a God of power, and he's going to show you how his power far exceeds the powers of this world and what this world does. So we shouldn't expect it. It's not typical. It's not normal. Paul never advocated for this, by the way. Paul didn't promote this. Paul didn't profit from this. Uh, If he would have, if he wanted to, Paul could have easily abandoned tent making for prayer cloth distributing. Easily. He could have been a cottage industry here. But he didn't. We see nothing of the apostle saying you need to do this. This is simply what was happening. And Luke makes a point of it that it was clearly attributable to God. So while it's not typical, it wasn't advocated by the apostles, it does speak to one thing we need to realize. God can do whatever he wants to do. And in this moment, in time, and for those people, here's what God decided to do. God decided that to magnify himself, to make his name known, to put his power on display, to to validate his messenger, to give credibility to the message of the gospel, that he would allow healings to take place or cause healings to take place through these claws. So this is what's happening here. So then next you get these these fake, and I put in parentheses because we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We're not given descriptions of these. We're not given a theological explanation of these itinerant exorcists. So this is what they did. Itinerant, this was their business, this was their life, going from place to place, village to village, town to town, casting out demons. Now you can put that in quotes or however you want. Put an asterisk beside that. We don't really know. We don't know if they were simply fake or they were demonic. Exorcists, magicians, whatever. But they saw what's happening here. And basically they say, we want some of that. Now that's, that's awesome. I mean, we got a thing going here that's working well for us, it's paying our bills, and people are buying into it. But that, man, if we could get something like that happening, that would take us to the whole next level. And so they want in on it. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Again, if you just want to make a simple note that will help you remember that, that's magic. They were trying a magical formula a magical incantation. And this was common to the Ephesians. Certain secret phrases, secret names, secret terms. And if we could use them, if we could invoke the name, then we get something out of it. Now, I won't have time to go too far down this road, but I hope some of you will be way ahead of me and you'll see that so much of modern pop Christianity looks a lot more pagan magical than it does Christian biblical. Invoking the name of Jesus to do things, commanding 
thinking that you control the power of God, that you get to dictate, that, that Jesus for us is much more like a, a genie in a bottle to be spoken to and directed than the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords to be surrendered to and to be obeyed. And so they're, they're looking at this magical formula. And this was their culture. Ephesus was the magic capital of Asia. This is what they did. This was their norm in addition to their pagan temple practices. It was their magic. It was their, their writings of magic and their, their secret books. Even today, the library in Ephesus is still one of the best preserved um, bits of archaeology from the ancient world. This is what Ephesus did. But the question always comes up, and it's one I can't exactly answer fully. When you look at these people, these practitioners of magic, supposedly creating healings or causing healings, supposedly casting out demons. Was this just a scam and a show? Or was something real happening here? Was there real spiritual power at work here? Were these just clever con men who fooled simple-minded people? One thing we see in history, and it's borne out from what we see in Ephesus, is it seems like the, the less educated people the people in more difficult situations were the ones more likely to buy into the claims of these false magicians and things. It didn't seem to have appeal to the upper classes, the educated, to the philosophers. Were they just appealing to a vulnerable group and so people were buying into something that was a lie? Or were they really seeing something happening here that was supernatural? Well, I think the answer is probably both. It's probably both. It shouldn't be outside of our understanding of how Satan might work in his twisted, broken deceptive kingdom that he might allow them some successes now and then to keep the lie going. Wouldn't that make sense to us? If they're his demons and he's working in all this for the deception of people to draw them further and further into darkness and, and into deception themselves, that he wouldn't grant them some victories along the way. Yeah, we'll pretend. We'll step out. We'll let you see some things. We'll create some powerful events. Satan is real. There's real spiritual power at work in this world. So the answer is probably both. So were they deceived people deceiving others? I think so. Were they also deceptive people intentionally deceiving others? I think that's probably true also. But something happens here that's different. And this is because of the intent of God. God's going to do something now that's just going to peel it all back for a moment. It's not going to let this charade continue. Whether the charade is just their fakery, or whether the charade is the limited, lesser power of the enemy. He's going to peel it all back. Look what happens next. They encounter an evil all of a sudden that's real. The text has a bit of, I think, um, intended humor in it. I mean, I think that's why what happened to them happened to them. And it seems as if in the text, the way that it's worded is when they spoke to that demon, they weren't expecting a response this time. They weren't expecting a voice to come back to them. And so the demon speaking to the man that he possessed answers them. He answers them. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize but who are you? And that ought to be chilling for a moment. I just want you to think on that for a second. In Jesus' ministry, who were the first to recognize who he really was? doesn't mean they were saved, by the way. It doesn't mean they surrendered to him, yielded their will to him, but who were the first to recognize Jesus when he began to speak and lead? It was always the demonic. And he silenced them. That they knew the reality of this thing called Christianity that they knew the real deal of who Jesus was and what was happening here, that they knew this cosmic conflict was taking place right before their eyes of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light coming in, the kingdom of Jesus invading Ephesus. Man, they knew it full well. They encounter an evil that's real, and it's beyond their ability to control. They don't get to dictate this one. And what does this evil spirit do? It exposes them as frauds. They're exposed now as frauds. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. I just want you to picture the scene. There's seven of them, one of him. After they try to cast that demon out of him, he jumps on them, overcomes all of them, beats them down till they're fleeing from the house, bloody and naked. I mean, if you want to talk about a humiliating, disgraceful defeat. I mean, I don't know if they could ever perpetuate that itinerant exorcist, uh, you know, charade deal somewhere else, somewhere down the line, you know, if word didn't spread, but it's over in Ephesus. Game over now for them. 
And they go fleeing out of there. But, you know, beyond just being an interesting story for us, like a, wow, that's crazy, man. There's some application here. And, And I want you to think about it for a moment. In no particular order, I want you to realize that you and I can fake it in this world. I mean, Christians and non-Christians, we intermingle sometimes. We, we, as Jesus said in his parable, we grow up together like wheat and tares, and it's kind of hard to tell the difference until the harvest comes. And people, I mean, people are just easy to fool sometimes. It's not hard to fake being a Christian in, in group settings, you know, in church settings, you know, just don't say certain words anymore. You know, learn to say certain things you didn't used to say before. Stand where you're supposed to stand. Sit where you're supposed to sit. Close your eyes when everyone else is doing it. Sing when they're singing. I mean, it's not hard to play along. And you can learn the basic answers. You know, if you're sitting in a life group and somebody asks a question, there's a 50-50 chance the answer is Jesus. You know, you you can get this. You can game this. But you can't game it in the spiritual world. You can't. There's a, there's a reality here. There's an unseen world. In the physical, material world, yeah, we can, we can put it on all day long. That's why Jesus said, there'll be many that will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we game the system? Depart from me, I never knew you. But in the spiritual world, maybe you've never thought about this, but you're, you're known. There's no faking it there. And also think about this in terms of our approach to Jesus. Is it a... Is it a magical approach or is it a servant approach? A a magical approach in that here's what Jesus can do for me. I I come to Jesus because I want him to do these things for me. And so much of the gospel, so-called gospel that's presented in our age today is is a magical approach. You come to Jesus and you can lay claim to these things. You can speak these things into existence. You can declare these things. You, You can... You can be his God in your world, and Jesus will serve all these things to you. Is it a Jesus you can use, or is it a Jesus who comes in and conquers, and then rules? He conquers us and our defiance and our resistance, and he conquers us and our, and our rebellion against him, and, and he conquers the sin that has so gripped us and has so dominated us and so dictated our lives and our future, and he sets us free, and we now follow him. Which, which is it? King Jesus or servant Jesus? The one that submits to my will or the one that I submit to? It's a whole different approach. Years ago, I, I preached at a student conference um, from this text. And I titled it intentionally provocatively, but not meaning to be crude or to diminish the text. But I titled the message, Who in Hell Are You? And the idea came, came from this text. Do the demons of hell even know who you are? Think about that for a moment. Obviously, Jesus they knew, and Paul they knew. Why did they know Paul? And Paul had been ripping up their kingdom through the power of God for a long time now. From the moment of his conversion to Antioch, from Damascus to to Antioch, to Corinth, to to Ephesus, ultimately to Rome, and he's turning their world upside down. The kingdom of darkness is being beaten back, beaten back, and the kingdom of light's coming. They know full well who who Paul was, do the demons of hell know your name? Do they have any reason to know who you are? Do they know that you changed sides? Do they know that they lost you? You know, because all of us at one time were part of the kingdom of darkness. That's what our salvation is. It's deliverance from darkness to light. Have you been lost to that kingdom? Has their team lost one? Or do they have no concern for you because they know what team you're still on? They know you're faking it. They know you're playing the game, but they know when it's all said and done. And the facade gets pulled back, and everyone gets exposed for who they really are. They know they still got you. Does the kingdom even, kingdom of hell even know your name? And the, another question, am I a threat to that kingdom? If they know they lost me, and so now they can do nothing to gain me back, once, once, once I've been delivered from that kingdom of darkness, that kingdom can't yank me back in. I belong to Christ now, and he holds me in his hand, and no one, no power, no person, no kingdom can take me out of his hand, so the kingdom I'm in now in Christ is a permanent kingdom, but am I any threat to that kingdom? Am I any threat to that kingdom now? I mean, they, they know I'm not on their team anymore, but no big deal, no loss. At least he or she's not doing anything for the other side. 
like a lot of you, I, I spent my time in that, little bit, my time yesterday in that cathartic fall tradition known as Saturday football. And one phrase just sort of struck me that I would hear different times during the games regarding different players. I'm not going to tell you players because I don't want all y'all to get all cocky about Alabama fans, but you know, I heard them talking about game plan. You got a game plan for that guy. Man, you got to know where he is all the time. So in a critical play, you don't allow him to scramble. No, sorry, that's my hard feelings from yesterday. In a critical play, you don't allow him to scramble for a first down because you, you got a game plan for him. Does hell have to game plan for you? I mean, think about that. The kingdom of hell is always strategizing around where Paul was going to go next. What can we throw in his way? What opposition can we bring? Where can we stir some people up that might silence him? Where can we rile up some demonic power that might oppose him? Where, where can we cause people to persecute him? Man, they were game, Satan and his team were game planning for him all the time. Do they game plan for us? Do we make any difference? Does he have to game plan for you? Does hell even know us? Well, it's clear from this passage of Scripture this wasn't just happenstance. This wasn't just circumstance. It wasn't just another odd event that, that Luke just says, oh, by the way, let me tell you this crazy story that happened. It's all part of the flow of the promise of God to take the gospel to the nations. And so as he does, we can see that this whole event, the miracles through Paul and his garments, this encounter with the demonic world, all these were ordained by God and very purposeful. There's reason behind all this. Look again at verse 17 for a second. And this became known. I mean, how would it not? Right? How would it not? Who, I mean, how does that not spread? This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. So you got religious Jews, not necessarily saved people here, religious Jews who attend the synagogue, and you got pagan Greeks, Gentiles, who maybe they go to temple or maybe they engage in all sorts of other cultic practices, but it just goes throughout both cultures and worlds. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They know this is real. They know this is fearful because this is far more powerful than anything they've ever experienced before. It's different than anything they've ever seen before. It's at a whole other level. It doesn't say they became saved by it, by knowing about it, hearing about it. But now there's a name that's associated all over in Greek cultures, pagan cultures, and Jewish religious cultures. There's a name associated with great power, and that name is Jesus. And many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Again, it's all tied to that idea of magic. The power of that magic was that it's secret. You know, I don't share with you my secret formulas, my incantations, and, and all of those things. I, but now they're just divulging and they're pouring it out. And it's interesting, too, that it says when they took all their religious books and they burned them. This is not the same thing as book burning where you burn other people's books. This is people voluntarily burning their own in repentance, when they go to burn them, Luke, the great historian that he is, and with his penchant for detail, notes the dollar amount that was going up in flames, 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you know how much that was? For a regular working person, a, a, a blue-collar person, as it were, of that day, one piece of silver, one day's wage. 50,000 days of wages for a person. It's a lot of money in that pile. And they're burning it up. They burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So what are the reasons behind this? First one is this, and I alluded to it at the beginning. Why did God do what he did through Paul's work clothes? Well, it demonstrates God's sovereignty in salvation. I, whatever it takes to make himself known, however he chooses to make his name great, whatever way he intends to get that message out in hard places, in pagan places, in otherwise unreached places, God can do. He's sovereign that way. This should, by the way, give us great hope in those faraway mission fields and in those places that are most difficult or most unreached, in those places that seem impenetrable even to the gospel. That's the way Ephesus would have seemed on the, on the surface. How are you going to get through all that darkness? How are you going to get through that level of magical practice and occult beliefs and temple worships and false gods and all those things? Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to show a superior power. 
And so it should give us confidence in the sovereignty of God and salvation throughout, throughout all the nations. Remember, it's his promise. It's his promise. that The gospel will go towards all of these people, to all these nations, and then the end will come. It's going to happen. It also validates the Apostle Paul as God's messenger. Now, this Paul is real. He's not like these other charlatans, itinerant magicians and sons of priests and religious leaders and rabbis and all these other so-called spokespeople for God. Paul is not one of those. Paul is God's messenger. He validates them, and he validates the gospel as his message. Paul's teaching was always straightforward, narrowly focused, and direct. Christ Jesus and him crucified. It validates that message. This is what I want you to hear. It also exposes the emptiness. And not just the emptiness, but the impotence of this false spirituality, this godless spirituality. Is there spirituality apart from God? Well, sure there is. You hear that phrase all the time. It's kind of tiring, really. Well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. What does that mean? It can mean anything, because there are spiritual powers at work in this world. Principalities, powers, darkness, and strongholds, and and spiritual enemies. We have those. Paul writes about those in which book? Ephesians. Ephesians. These things are real, and, and there are real enemies. And spirituality can be many things, but now this message of the gospel, this saving power of Christ, is being set up, proposed as the alternative to all of that. All of that is empty and powerless before the face of Christ. Look how the gospel transforms completely. Look how the gospel sets people free. Look how the gospel changes people's desires and practices and lives. Look how the gospel sets people free of demon possession. Look how people are being healed by the power of God. That's the power of the gospel and exposes all this emptiness and this astrology and occultism and magical practices and in so doing he's also breaking the stronghold of the enemy if we had the ability in sort of a frank peretti way you guys may remember frank peretti and some of his writings his present darkness and whatnot if we had the ability to see a spiritual map not a physical one a spiritual one if we had the ability to look at the kingdoms of this world and see the spiritual powers and forces at work in those areas and where darkness is most prevalent and where spiritual control, dark spiritual control is its greatest. If we had the ability to see that sort of spiritual map, I suppose that we would have seen Ephesus as a pinnacle of the enemy's kingdom, as a high point in the enemy's kingdom. But this event shatters it. The stronghold of the enemy is, is shattered here. He's breaking through. It's more than just It's the gospel is more than just your personal faith and you get to believe it, keep it secret, and when you die, you get to go to heaven. It's the power of the kingdom of God coming into the world, shattering the kingdom of darkness and driving it out and saying, this Jesus, he's king. He's king over all. That's what the real gospel is, this picture of King Jesus. So it magnifies the name and person of Jesus. Now, they're not saved yet just because Jesus becomes famous because Paul became famous, or because the seven sons of Sceva were infamous. But it's the start. It's magnifying the name and person of Jesus. Now, let me tell you, can you imagine the opportunities and the doors that were opened to the early church in Ephesus then? Also, you've heard of Jesus. You've heard of Paul. Well, let me tell you about the God of Jesus. I mean, the God of Paul. Let me tell you about this God, Jesus. Let me tell you about him and what he's done. Let me tell you about what he can do for you. Let me tell you about his power. Let me tell you about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the return of King Jesus. Another effect in the Christian world was this. Look at how it delivers and sanctifies believers who truly repented. How do we know the believers truly repented here? Well, there are a couple of clear-cut signs. It says even the believers. So you had people who had heard the gospel. They'd received it as true but their lives were still conflicted and that they were still practicing some of the things they used to practice. They were still living in that world. They were still doing the things they used to do. That's syncretism. Um, Yes, they believed in God and his son Jesus that he had sent, believed in the cross and the resurrection, but they still were dabbling in these occultic practices. How do we know they repented? What they were doing in secret, they now 
made known to all. Look at how the passage reads this again. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. That which was hidden is now public. That's, that's real repentance here. That's confession and repentance. Those things in secret in the dark are not gripping them anymore. How do we know when we've genuinely confessed and repented? When those things which God has exposed, we don't mind coming to light. Where does Satan work best? In the hidden shadows of our lives, the dark places of our lives. Now, I don't suspect that many, if, no, I don't suspect expect that any of you are practicing magical things. I hope that would not be the case. That you're not dabbling in things like Ouija boards and astrology charts and fortune telling, which could be simply a scam. This could also be entry points or active points for real spiritual power because there's real spiritual darkness in this world. I would hope that none of you are dealing with that in secret or in the darkness. But if you've got secret sins that are captivating you, until those things come to light and you put them down, you've not really repented. Biblical repentance is not a perpetual state of feeling bad over my sins or feeling guilty. That's never been the mark of real repentance. Well, I feel guilty all the time for what I'm doing. That's not repentance. Repentance, putting it down. Throw that stuff into the fire and let it be consumed. And real repentance, by the way, is, is a costly thing. We should never think that repentance will be, will be easy. It's costly. I imagine there was more than one shaking hand, dropping a very expensive book of formulas and magic and incantations into that fire. Some they paid a great deal for from some traveling itinerant exorcist or such. 50,000 pieces of silver they placed worth of stuff in that pile that day because they didn't care because they're leaving it behind. When you really repent, you stop caring about the cost of what you're leaving behind. You put it out there. So it's breaking strongholds. It's magnifying Jesus. But now those people who genuinely repented, they're being delivered. They're being sanctified. God broke through in both the dark world, but he also broke through in the lives of those new believers. Listen, you've got to go all the way here. You've got to follow me completely. You've got to surrender to my authority and power and put that stuff down. It belongs not in your life. There's no place for that in your life anymore, and that's got to go. And what's the ultimate effect? And I can't improve upon the summary statement of verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. To spread and increase the life-giving, healing power of the Word of God was a great purpose and effect. So now, that which will deliver people from sin and darkness, that which will give people new lives in this world, that which will put the Spirit of God in them, making them His for all eternity, that which will guarantee them their salvation, both now and forever, the truth of the gospel, the Word of God, is now going to go out. And so what once was a stronghold for the enemy... And Ephesus now becomes a stronghold for the cause of Christ. And that's the power of God. It's not just that a few people in that city got rescued, though every person surely matters and is of immense worth to God. It's that the city now will become a beacon of light, whereas it was a harbor of darkness. And that's the difference that the gospel makes. Now, there are a few questions that may be left lingering. You may discuss these some in your small groups or around the table a little bit of an epilogue, I guess, some few questions that are worth us looking at for today, just real quick for a moment. First question, I think, might be this for you. Does God still heal? Does God still deliver people miraculously? And you can put in parentheses and deliver people who are possessed. Does, does this still happen today? And I think the answer surely is yes. Power of God to deliver those. Is it the norm? Is it typical? No. The most important healing that God offers us, which is typical and normal in the gospel, is that which is eternal. Is that we would be set free of sin and death forever. Is that we would be raised up in Christ with a new body into a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more sickness or death or crying or pain. That's the norm. That's the biblical norm. Should God choose to work in other ways as He sees fit to glorify the name of Jesus, to advance the cause of the gospel? Yes. So yes. Are demons real? Again, the answer is, is yes. 
Each of us should not be preoccupied with the subject. We should not immerse ourselves in it in some sort of weird fascination. We should at least be familiar with what the scriptures teach about the spiritual enemies of God and us. C.S. Lewis gave a great summary of this in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, if you've read the Screwtape Letters. He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And they hail a materialist, one who doesn't believe in the spiritual world, or a magician, one who delves into the spiritual world with the same delight. And so we should be the same. So that being said, should we be afraid? Should we be afraid that there's a spiritual world out there that's dark, that there is real evil, with real power, that has influence in people's lives, that oppresses people, sometimes possesses people? You have a spiritual enemy that wars against you? Should we be afraid of that? Again, the briefest answer and the simplest answer is no. It's no. One, we know that we're secure in the hands of Christ. Worst thing that the enemy could ever do to us is to take this earthly life. He can't take our soul, can't take our relationship with God in Christ, can't change our eternity. In fact, even in this world, he can't touch us apart from the will of God, the permissive will of God. And we know and we see from Scripture that whether it was from the mouth of Jesus or the mouth of the apostles or the mouth of the 72 after, that those demon forces obeyed the voice of those who represented God in Christ. And they're submissive to that. And there is no comparable authority. One of the great myths of evil in this world today is that there's a dark and evil coexisting and battling it out with the souls of mankind. There is not. There is one great power. And every other power, material or spiritual, submits to that power. So we'll be afraid, no, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we belong to him. So how then should we live in light of this evil all around us? I mean, if this is real, okay, if this is, if this is a glimpse back behind the curtain, as it were, if this is an appeal back to not just some weird occasion in the first century book of Acts, but man, we have a real enemy out there. And sometimes that real enemy reveals himself. How do we live in that sort of world? Well, we need to remember what is the normal, typical, routine, as it were. And routine doesn't mean that it's not critical, valuable, and essential. What is the normal way that God has sent us and calls us, uh, calls us to minister in this world, to live in this world. Well, think of Timothy. So Timothy's a young apprentice of Paul, right? Think of the connections, the dots here. So the book of Acts describes this ministry when the church is established in Ephesus. It tells us that Paul spent some years in Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesians describes some of the challenges of the believers then and now in Ephesus and some of the primary teachings of, of the gospel. And then Timothy, who becomes a pastor in that city, becomes a leading spiritual leader in that city after Paul is gone. And what does Paul tell Timothy? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So we're not out there just to argue and fight it out. Not quarrelsome. Kind to everyone. Think of context here. Kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil, and enduring doesn't mean tolerating or condoning. The idea of enduring evil is not letting that evil defeat you or discourage you. Don't despair because you live in evil times, Timothy. Enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. What is the primary way that God will use you and me to overcome the evil that's in this world? What's the primary way? As we serve him, we treat people with kindness gentleness and we teach we tell the truth and we're not dissuaded or discouraged or made fearful or become despondent or in despair because of evil but we correct we correct we teach what is true we correct what is false we do this with gentleness consistency perseverance we just do this we show the love of christ we teach the truth of christ we deny the enemies of christ why? Because we're trusting in what God will do. Look at the very next part of that passage. The Lord's servant does those things, and then God's part is this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. I must do what I must do. I will trust that God will do what only God can do, that God would grant them repentance and breakthrough, so that they, now their responsibility, may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That doesn't mean there aren't times where a Christian might not encounter a demonic force and might have to actually cast that spirit out. It's never happened to me in 
20-something years of ministry, I've prayed with people who I thought were demon-oppressed, even encountered a person I thought might be demon-possessed and prayed. Had nothing encountered like this. I didn't come out of there bloody or beaten, and, and I heard no voices back. But I do know this, our normal, everyday work in this world, kindness and gentleness, truthfulness and confidence, teaching and correcting, lifting up Christ, telling the gospel, standing against what's false, trusting that God would grant repentance and breakthrough so they come to their senses and be delivered from evil. This is what God has called us to do in this world. And this is what we must do as his ambassadors. Why? Because there's power there. There's power there. Paul wasn't suddenly telling Timothy to do something that was without power. He wasn't contrasting. Now, I did things powerfully, like with cloths and handkerchiefs. You do things unpowerfully. You teach and you talk and you correct. Now, he's saying this is God's power. You and I have to believe there's power in the Word of God, properly taught. We've got to be ready to teach it. We've got to be ready to say this is what God says. We also have to be ready to correct. Say, no, 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 that's wrong. That's not what the Bible says. That's not true. No, God has not promised to deliver you through a cloth held in your pocket. That's, that's magic. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. We teach, we correct, and we do it with gentleness, and we do it again and again, and we never despair. We never concede. We never condone. We never give up in the face of evil because that's where God's power is. And if God should choose to exert his power in some other way that we would call remarkable, extraordinary, then so be it. We will let God do what God chooses to do. And we will continue to pray every day for those people who are captivated by sin, captivated by deception, captivated by evil, would, because God granted them such, come to their senses and be delivered from the snare of the devil. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I pray that even now that you stir us up to what you would have us to do as your people Father, forgive us for despairing sometimes in the evil that we see all around us and the culture in which we live and fearfulness of what the future might bring or the world our kids might grow up in. But instead, Father, see our role as for such a time as this. Able and ready to teach. Able and willing to correct. Father, guard us against our, our bent sometimes to be quarrelsome and contentious. May we do what we do with kindness even gentleness, all the while trusting, trusting that you, Father, would grant repentance, grant repentance, your power at work. As we unashamedly tell the truth, as we boldly correct falsehood and error and lies. Father, all the while praying the people who are exposed to us because of the words that we share, because the lives that we live that verify those words and validate them, come to their senses and be delivered. Father, may this be so of us. Listen, as you respond today, just, just for a moment, you, you've got to respond in some way. You know, your response to what you've heard today will either be dismissive and you just let it go, slips through your fingers or in one ear and out the other, or you respond in some actionable way. There are a lot of different ways that you and I might be responding today that God may have taken a part of this text and by His Spirit attached it to your life. And I don't know what that way is, but you and Holy Spirit of God do, so respond appropriately. Are there some things that are hidden in darkness that need to be brought to light, need to be confessed, and need to be repented of? I mean, put on that fire to be consumed so they can't be picked up again abandoned so you might truly know the goodness of God in your life you might truly know the peace of God in your life so you might truly know that saving power that delivers you that changes you perhaps there are some Christians in this room that might be a bit motivated today by just the thought that there is a real spiritual war to be fought out there and there are somebodies and there are nobodies in that battle If your desire is to be a somebody in that battle, that the enemy would know your name. And I pray that would be your commitment today, that you won't be silenced. You won't be afraid. You won't conform. 
You won't give in. You won't allow yourself to be just made angry. So you hate all those people around you doing all those things. You will be an instrument in the hand of God. Boldly, fearlessly. That's a bit challenging for us. You know, the thought of that, man, I don't want to make myself a target. No, but I want to make myself an instrument in God's hand. I want to be a somebody in that kingdom, not for, not for reward in this life. But I hope you as a Christian want the enemy to know your name. I don't want there to ever be an occasion where the enemies of God, the future residents of the lake of fire, will be, ever, ever be able to say of me, I know Jesus. Apostle Paul recognized. Who are you? Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer yet. I want you to know in, in salvation there's real power. If you've never hold, heard the whole story of the power of God in the gospel, I hope you'll hear at least this this morning. The same power that took Jesus, who was crucified and buried, laying in that tomb, and three days later was raised, the same mighty power that brought him back from the grave physically, not just spiritually, not just the spirit of Jesus, but Jesus who walked out of that grave physically. That same mighty power that resurrected Jesus is a power that works in those who believe. It works in those who believe. That's a whole lot more than just punching your ticket to heaven one day, just in case heaven's real. That's about a transformation of your life right now. It says you can be a resurrected person. You don't have to be who you used to be. You don't have to do the same things you used to do. God can set you free. That's the power of God. The gospel has the power to free us from our sins and to forge in us a new life. Will you say yes to that power? Every other power is insufficient. And every other power one day yield to that power, that great power. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that power is available to you today to change your life, to set you free, forgive you of sins, and make you new. Will you trust in it today? Father, may our response be worthy of your message to us today by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and we respond as we should, whatever way that is, Father, and be obedient, be doers of this word, and not hearers only. I pray in Jesus' name.